Here at Steady State Podcast, we are really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. By sharing stories about the humanity of our sport, we're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates real-life experience from launch to coxie at every level. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode, a conversation with Allison Mueller, a highly competitive master's rower, successful business owner, and former communications director for U.S. Rowing. Mid-season, Allison announced that she and her husband are expecting a baby early in the new year. She wrapped up the 2022 season having rowed seven regattas and 15 races, 14 of them with baby on board. If you missed it, listen anytime at studystatenetwork.com slash podcast or anywhere you get podcasts. This episode is made possible in part by Concept2, Lake Washington Rowing Club, and our newest sponsor, Breakwater Realty in Portland, Maine. Become a sponsor for as little as $65 at steadystatenetwork.com slash sponsors. Breakwater Realty Group, located in Portland, Maine, is defined by integrity, service, and expertise. Breakwater challenges you to create a vision for your life and love where you live. Call the team at 207 712-4041 or visit breakwaterrealtygroup.com Breakwater Realty Group The evolution of your real estate experience starts here On this episode, we talk with a huge talent in the next generation of American single scholars Born and raised in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho Isaiah Harrison started earning when he was 12 Today, the six foot nine, 19-year-old currently holds 35 indoor rowing world records across multiple age groups. Isaiah made the transition from the erg to a single coached by his dad and quickly started racking up medals. Independent of a school program or community club, Isaiah has climbed the ladder to the junior national team and now the U23 national team. And he was just named the 2022 U.S. Rowing Under-23 National Team Male Athlete of the Year, and has his sights set on Paris 2024. Hey, Rachel, what do you think of Isaiah Harrison? Oh, oh, geez. Well, I he blew me away, honestly. I didn't know what to expect. Um, 19-year-old guy who uh, learned to row by erging, and... Really, he and his dad, who was his coach, have just blazed a whole new trail in how to get involved in rowing. Yeah. And I think he's he's just an impressive individual. I mean, he's homeschooled. He's very trained. He's very disciplined. But he was really just sort of lovely to be around. And he's 19. Yeah. You know, he's a kid. Um, yeah. I was excited. I was excited to ask him about college. Like, are you going to go to college? You know, you know, and well. The answer that he gave was an interesting one. People have to listen to the episode to find out what he has to say, but I'm sure that we are not the first folks to ask him that. I think that a lot of rowers and coaches want to know where this phenom uh, wants to go to school. He's uh, taking a, a gap year, as he calls it, and making some decisions. What really impresses me about Isaiah Harrison is that his approach to rowing is really, really different than a lot of rowers, not just a lot of young rowers, right? Like 
we go to a practice, a coach tells us something, we may or may not remember how they described it to us. You and I as coaches say, God, we have to say something 800 different ways for somebody to get it. Mm-hmm. And maybe he's heard it 800 different ways. And now he has this formula that he understands that works. And he can talk about rowing in this very mature, very mature way um, that yeah. really, really surprised me and was very impressive. Yeah, he's really, really dialed in. I think because he's a single scholar, he's really yeah. dialed into his own physiology and his own capabilities and he was really dialed into his mental game Mm -hmm. like we asked him questions about what do you do while you erg for a long time and like what do you think about when you're rowing and because you know a single sculler's brain is there's got to be a lot of wheels turning there and he has you remember when you learned to drive and you had like your what is it your six checkpoint your three-point check or whatever it was called the Uh three-point check you know before you did anything you had to do the three-point check oh yeah over the left shoulder over the right shoulder yeah right rear view mirror (laughs) yeah um like why we remember these things but (laughs) so ingrained um but he has that whole setup in his system where he can check himself the thing that was fun was when we saw him sort of go off the rails a little bit about boston that you know, you can row in your own home lake, you can row in a lane in the Olympics, but, and oh, his correlate is, he was basically correlating rowing in a younger person's event last year at the Charles, where he kind of had open water and he kind of had a control of the thing. Yeah. And no one was really challenging him. They were getting out of his way. He said, right. (laughs) Everybody's getting out of his way. And then transitioned to this year of like getting out of other people's way, but just funny to see him sort of go, Oh, whoa. All right. You know, this is how it is. There's always more to learn. And he knows that. And that's exactly what he's pushing himself um, to do is get himself into situations where he's, he's not the big fish, you know, he's the little fish in a big pond and there's always more to learn from more experienced, uh, what we might call grittier rowers, you know, just because you're six, nine doesn't mean that you can win every race, you know, or because you're 19 or you can win. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of sports like, uh, triathlon, uh, and rowing, I think in in particular, the athletes aren't actually the most competitive until they're a bit older until Mm. they're, you know, in their, you know, well, with triathlon, it's like thirties, thirties. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, he's got a really incredible runway in front of him and he is motivated. He's determined, he's supported, he is celebrated. And it sounds like his family is his biggest cheerleading squad. Um, we saw them all together at the Charles, his little brother, Elijah actually raced the event, uh, this year and did really well in his event as well. So, it's a family tradition and it was fun to find out how he got started and where he's off to. Hi there. Hi, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for coming. So you are just back from the U.S. rowing Golden Oars ceremony where you were named the U23 National Team Male Athlete of the Year. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was... Um, but it was definitely a great honor, especially to be chosen by my peers. And so I was really, really appreciative of it. And I was happy for the opportunity to represent the U23 squad at the Golden Doors. Um, that was something that I really enjoyed that I was really great. Was that your first time in New York City? That was my first time in New York City. Mm-hmm. I've been to most other large cities across the East Coast. But last time we were doing a family trip, just kind of did a flyby. 
Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? I know when I've been to New York, it's I, I live in a small town on the West Coast and I'm like, whoa. Yeah. No, it's incredible. It's a massive city. The biggest thing that struck me about it is I just been in Boston, uh, the Charles, um, about a week and a half beforehand, right? Boston is a, is a beautiful city, but it's very horizontal. It's very spread out. It's very kind of rolling with all the roads just curving, winding. The biggest difference is New York is just so vertical. It's just so tall and so big. It's so like dominating and impressive. So the biggest thing about it is just the fact that you're standing in between these buildings that stretch up for four or 500 feet and just keep going. Um, yeah. They're everywhere. Well, congratulations, really. I mean, this is a huge honor to be named the under 23 national team male athlete of the year. We've been kind of watching from the sidelines the last few years as you've been developing as a rower. And it's just so exciting to see you um, on the big national spotlight like this. So congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. So we want to ask you on a scale of one to 10, how is your rowing week going? Seven, six, just kind of a neutral week. The next week would be a week where I PR piece or it'd be a week where I had races because for me, racing is kind of the reward for my training. And so it's constantly something I look forward to and enjoy, especially on the water. In the indoor rowing season on the year, um, it's more of a grind, but this week, um, it's been a positive week. It's been a good week. Most of the workouts have gone according to plan or how I wanted them to. So I'd say it's on the positive side, but it's not excellent. Excellent is reserved for times that are exceptional. Mm, yeah. What has your training looked like this week? Mostly high volume. Um, and then also some short high intensity pieces right now I'm training to, uh, see what I can do on an upcoming one K piece that I'm planning. Uh, right now I'm about a second and a half off of the all-time men's world record for the indoor rowing 1K. And so I'm just trying to see if I can get closer to that, see what I can do with that. Um, because it's probably 1K to 1,200, 1,500. That's probably my best distance. It's the distance I'm most competitive at. And so I enjoy those pieces. Do you break it down into 250s in your mind? Or do you just go? Most of the time... With a 1K, my strategy is for about the first 200 to really, really halt. Just don't care about burning out. Don't care about going hard. Because a 1K definitely tips the scales on the sprint side. And so your anaerobic capacity is only going to run out for about the last 300 meters. And so basically the lactic acid is going to build up. But at the end of the race, it's not like a 2K where you're stuck with lactic acid for the last 500 meters or the last minute and a half. It only lasts the burnout and the fade down only lasts for about 40, 50 seconds. And so you can really haul through the 1K and then only start losing speed in the last few strokes, only in the last five, 10 strokes, mm-hmm. which is painful, but it's really effective in order to gain distance. So yeah. Tara, I think that this guy might someday make an fantastic master's rower right we've talked to a lot of younger rowers (laughs) only rowed 2ks and then they don't know how to approach a 1k when it comes to master's rowing because that's Uh what we do that's what we race so you're going to be ready (laughs) someday yeah Yeah, no i've raced all the distances i mean every distance 100 meters to marathon i tried 100k at one point this that was the stupidest thing i've ever done in I, Why I you say that? This day. I got 60, I got 66 K into it 
um, and my body just shut down. Yeah. I like taking stand up straight or bend over beyond like 20 degrees for over a week. Oh my gosh. It was, it was bad. So what kind yeah. of, what was your kind of split range for that? Sub two minute. Yep. Sub two. hundred yeah. K. Yeah. So I first saw you uh, at Northwest Ergomania and I think it was like your first big uh, competition. Yeah. Cause I, I remember seeing you come in with your, you had your own uni and you had your, your family with you and it was so, so cool. And I think people were like, who's this guy, you know, where did he come from? And, and I wanted to ask you about that experience. Was that kind of your first public outing as an indoor rower? I would say it was my first introduction to like the rowing scene proper. We have a small local club and they organize and conduct some small local regattas, but those aren't really connected with U.S. rowing largely. Most of the time, they're pretty isolated. Ergomania was the first time where you were drawing from a broader range of clubs. And so that was probably my first real experience with rowing, even if it was on the indoor scene. Um, but look at looking back on it now compared to like Crash Bees or the World Indoors, Ergomania does look to be on the small side, but at the time it was so impressive. Um, it, it's crazy. It's an, it's an amazing difference, but it's also an amazing journey. Yeah. Yeah. That was an event I helped produce for many years and always participated in the hour of power where we would have, you know, people rowing, you know, 140 splits to, you know, just everyday average master's splits. And, and so, yeah, really fun. It's my favorite event. I like, I like the slog. Yeah. The hour is a good run. The 10 K is really difficult. Um, 10K puts your body into a weird position where you have to process uh, pain differently because you're having to row at such a heavy pressure or such a high rate that it's almost like you have the pain of a 2K, but with 5K left, um, very, very mentally difficult. The hour is difficult, and then the marathon and the half marathon are just absolute grinds. Those ones you just sit down and really work your way through yeah, Do I've you, done a couple. I've done a couple of half marathons at Ergspress, which is a local indoor run competition here in Alexandria, Virginia, and it's been around for about thirty-five years. It's one of the largest indoor rowing competitions. I was actually going to ask you if you might go this year, but it's the same weekend as U.S. Rowing Indoor Champs. In, oh yeah, in City, which I was wondering if you're going to go to that. Uh, we don't have plans to go to it yet, uh, but we. It's not like we're planning not to. It's just that we haven't decided or haven't made plans to go to it yet. I got my fingers in a lot of different pots here with Erg Sprints in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I might see if I can convince you to come here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have to ask you, though, you know, in those long pieces, you know, some people listen to music. Do you just go pure, you know, mental training? Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. No, on those long pieces, I'll watch movies. There's just a TV by the Erg uh, where I normally row, and I'll have earbuds to connect to it via Bluetooth, and then I'll turn on movies and I'll watch that. I found that because I rode, especially indoor, so much, my body has normal training patterns or normal pressures, and it's also very quick at learning what a pressure should feel like. So after a few K, my body will respond knowing what pressure I should be hitting. And so I can tone out, I can let my mind relax. I can focus on something else. And I've also found that focusing on something else and letting your body and your natural rhythms do the work allows you mentally to stay engaged with the piece for longer, because now you're not using up your mental energy. You're not using up your decision fatigue. 
So last time, it's kind of funny, whenever I did a marathon piece for the last time, it was for the, yeah, it was for the U8, it was for the U19 uh, indoor world record. I set the marathon. Um, I watched uh, both of the Avengers uh, Infinity War, Avengers Infinity War and then Avengers Endgame. Just stranger, both of yeah. them. So it's like, yeah. That that's, seems like that's a good choice. Thing. That's like the right energy level, I think. Yeah, solid choice. You come to the last battle scene, you're like, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like it's like it's like hype music. You know, people love to listen to hype music. You yeah. know, in in the erg room. Um, yeah. No, that that seems even better if you combine it with hype music. There's a clip on YouTube my brother showed me. It's the last scene from Avengers Endgame, and they're playing it over. Um, I need a hero. Oh. And, Absolutely. Perfectly. Beautiful. Great hype. Hey, Tara, I think maybe we should do rapid fire. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So rapid fire is how we uh, connect you to our listeners. So largely our listeners are people like Rachel and I, and they are just curious uh, folks. They might even be parents of rowers who are fans of yours uh, in your age group. But largely, we just want to see how we all connect as rowers. So our first Mm -hmm. question, if you're ready... Mm-hmm. Is sprint race so, or head race? Head race. More enjoyable. Sprint race if you're looking to be more competitive. All right. Unisuit or tank and trap? Uh, unisuit. Barefoot or shoes on the erg? Shoes. I just have a few picture of you in shoes in like um, whippins on the erg. Yeah. Uh, Shimano was letting me test out an erg setup that they had. Um, mostly just trying their shoes. They don't actually have shoes for an ERG. Um, but yeah, I've found that if you have a thin setup, it allows you to transfer power more effectively just because you don't have any of the wobble. So especially for short sprint pieces, it makes it more effective. Just a little bit of extra energy seems to help. I would imagine you go pretty hard on those. Do you need to like bolt the ERG down? Or oh, have yeah. Some, yeah, have somebody hold it. People standing on it. I have it bolted down. Otherwise, it rocks all over the place. The lowest slit I've seen on a sprint was a 106. I bet that would make an erg jump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> jump and drive, wobble all over. Okay, uh, calories, watts, or splits when you're on the erg? Splits. Do you like intervals or steady state training pieces? Mmm. Uh, if I'm doing it for my own sake and for enjoyment, I'm going to do steady state. But if I'm doing it for training or if I'm looking for, if I'm training for a competition, I'm always going to do intervals. The most useful thing for a competition is to be at pace. Best place to row? Um, Lake Jenny at the base of the National, uh, the Tetons, pretty good. Uh, we snuck a boat down into there. And so I have a picture of me on Lake Jenny at the base of the Tetons. It's a beautiful picture, but you're not actually allowed to row there, I don't think. So let me see. Best place to row. Of the places I've been, my favorite place has probably been the Charles River in Boston. Um, the environment, and then the location, uh, and then also the connection with the city there. Those are all good. Hmm. There's so much that goes into that. Have you rode in Lucerne? I have it. Oh, you're right. I wasn't even thinking international. Varese is really nice as well now that I speak up. One of the, the most impressive things about Varese is the environment and the atmosphere of the Italian culture combines with the race course. And so you are racing at the normal race course. Normally, whenever you're on the water, you're just focused on rowing, right? Like, doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what part of the world. 
you're there to row. And so that's your sole focus, but it's literally impossible to just think about rowing whenever you're on the water. Right. You're sitting at the base of the Alps, like staring at thinking about your 2k and you're like, oh my goodness, the Alps are amazing. It's just like, you're part of the culture, even whenever you're just out on the water, you're just surrounded by it. It's such an enjoyable atmosphere and it's such a fun place to race. When did you have the chance to race there? So I raced there at U23 Worlds last year. You had a successful regatta, didn't you? Yeah, U23 Worlds went really well. I was really happy. Um, I had no idea what I would do going into it just because I was the youngest competitor first time at U23. Um, so yeah, God was definitely very good with that race. It was an unexpected result that I'm very, very happy with. Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. I have one more question in our rapid fire, which is best piece of training or racing advice you've received. Most likely to do longer pieces at rate, preparing for any race you're going to do. Mm. Uh, and so that, what that boils down to in theory is spend more time in race environment. Typically adjust your body and your mentality to be prepared for race environment by doing four or five by 1K at 2K pace. It's nasty, um, but you need to do it. The longer you spend at 2K pace for really pushing yourself, the longer you spend at any rate or at any location, the better you're going to perform. Um, it's, it's pretty much that simple. Yeah, yeah. When I've trained for things like that before, we've done like pacing where you're like 2K plus five or 2K minus two, or you know, you're, so you're doing pieces that are sort of hovering around mm -hmm. pace. Or even if you want to do two by 1500. The biggest thing that I've found is leading up to 2K season almost every day at the mo at the minimum, every other day, I'll be doing something, even if it's just a few 200s at 2K pace. And the reason being is because I've found that whenever you spend time at pace like that, you build muscle memory. And so whenever you go to race, once you settle into that pace, your body knows that it doesn't have to react explosive. It can settle down to remain calm. And especially for the first 1500 or so, it can just be like, this is normal. I've done this before. I can be controlled. I can stay reserved and I can finish this piece. And so I've found building that muscle memory through the season, especially leading up to 2K season on the water or on the earth is invaluable. I have a question. You know, uh -huh. we can already tell you're very well versed in all things rowing. You understand the physiology. You're 19 years old. But take us back, you're 12, right? You're 12, you start erging. And what do you even know about the erg at that time or indoor rowing? And how did you get involved with it? I got involved because I wanted to watch Arnold. Watch Arnold? Mm -hmm. I wanted to watch Arnold. So the, the deal was there was a movie night, the local CrossFit gym my mom and dad were going to. And you had to row while you watched the movie. I had never seen Predator before. I knew of it, but I'd never seen it. And I wanted to watch Predator. And so I literally went and rode just so I could watch. Yeah. That was it's time on a machine. And so you make, you make your way through Predator. And yeah. that was a good movie. <laughs> yeah, that, that's basically it. But then afterwards for about a month, um, and this was whenever I was 11 or 12 somewhere. Yeah. Um, no connection to the earth, not doing anything, not aware rowing exists. No one in my family was really. Um, and then my mom and dad bought an herb for home fitness because my, my mom had a shoulder injury from college sports. And so she wasn't able to continue with CrossFit. 
Once we bought that, I started using it regularly two or three times a week, just voluntarily, because I wanted something to do to stay active. Um, and then my dad started comparing my times with the concept two online logbook, which records things annually for the fastest person by age group every year. And he noticed my times were constantly in the top three. And this was whenever I was just pushing mediocre. I wasn't really challenging myself. Hmm. So he challenged me in just one piece to hit the top of the leaderboard that year. And I did. And so we started doing that, doing the different distances, comparing them on the Concept2 logbook. And then it transferred to the Concept2 world records, where I started trying to take down world records for the 12-year-old age group, and then 13, 14, 15 to 16, uh, and then 17 to 18. Somewhere in there, about 14, I started competing on the water. Um, and once I started competing on the water, that opened up, I mean, an entire new sphere of rowing, a traditional sphere of rowing, really. Do you remember those first uh, days on the water and like what those first strokes felt like? I mean, we always say ergs, ergs don't float. So you're coming from this indoor background and then you get on the water. How did it compare? Well, I'm really grateful going into uh, rowing in the water that I was a solid swimmer. That was the biggest thing that I had going. <laughs> but I spent almost all my time in the water. So my first introduction to on the water rowing was at Crashbury in Vermont. An amazing place. I really appreciate the people there and all they've done to help me. Um, they produce solid athletes as well. But the first time I was there, uh, normally what they do is if you have an inexperienced rower, they put you in a larger, uh, stable ocean rowing shell. Um, and so I went in the shell and the first time I saw video footage of myself, I was like, I look stupid. And so I was in an ocean rowing shell for one session. And after that, I was like, no, I'm going to go in a normal rowing boat. And so I would. My second session ever being in a single, uh, I was in a racing shell and I flipped three times that session. Luckily I knew how to get back in the boat, but I was just too stubborn to row a wider boat. I wanted to be rowing a racing shell. And so that entire week at Crassberry, every session I would flip at least twice up until the very last session where I didn't flip at all, which was good because it was a race. Yeah. Yeah. That was my introduction to rowing. I remember it very clearly because it was somewhere new. It was in Vermont at Crassberry. And also I was, I, I distinctly remember not being willing to row something slow. I wanted to be in something that I knew could move. So what were those early discussions like? So you've been earning for a little while. You're doing really well. You're starting to rack up some world records. At what point did you say, you know, maybe this is a thing that I want to take off the erg and onto the water. And you're from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, right? There's not a big rowing scene there. Was there some something else that happened between making the decision to learn to row and going to Crestbury? Yeah, I'd rowed once. Um, I'd rowed once in a four-day camp whenever I was like 12 or 13 at the little local rowing regatta. But that wasn't really much of an introduction because it was very in and out. I just went, tried it, and we didn't have any access to boats really. And so we just kind of left it. Um in the early discussions, I mean, were all positive and interactive. It was a matter of, okay, what, what do I think I can do? What do I want to do? What I've always said is because of how much I wanted to push myself and the expectations I put on myself, even though I'm 19, um, I've trained myself to think and act older just because I've always had goals, someone older than what. And so I have to maintain posture and I have to maintain form and the mentality in order to maintain and pursue those goals. I don't remember the point whenever I decided that I wanted to pursue the Olympics, 
But as soon as I started getting involved in sports, I know what happened relatively quickly where I was like, I want to do something big. That's going to be the Olympics. Um, that's my mentality with a lot of things is if I'm going to pursue something, I want to pursue it as best I can. And I want to achieve the highest level of success I can. Just because if I'm going to invest my time in something, I want to do my absolute best. So before rowing, was there a different sport that you daydreamed about going to the Olympics? There was no, there was no other sport, um, but my family has always been incredibly active. My dad grew up as an outdoor guy. Um, he was a ski instructor, a, a rafting guide, rock climbing guide. My mother grew up in organized sports. She was throughout high school and college, a volleyball, basketball, and track athlete. Um, and she was on scholarship for all three throughout college. And so growing up, I was always outside. I was always skiing. I was always playing volleyball. We were always doing different things. My entire family is really, really active. Um, and everyone around us knows it and is super hesitant to do stuff with us because they know that we are going to drive them wild because <laughs> we just do things other people don't. Um, which I really, really appreciate because that gave me the mentality of never stopping and pursuing something that's difficult. I just enjoy it. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a very good fit for rowing because in rowing, it's about suffering beyond what's comfortable. It's about staying in the game. There's no timeout. Yeah. There's no substitutions. About what's... times in the pain cave. Yeah, pain cave for sure. Yeah. What's it been like for you in the times, if ever, that you rode in a boat with other people? Yeah. So I've actually raced in boats with other people a fair, fair few times. Um, I rode every boat, but a pair, I think, or I've raced every boat a pair. Because I grew up in a large family, I believe it has helped. So I'm very good at working with other people. I'm very good at interpreting. I'm very good at reading the situation and so engaging. Um, at the same time, I'm very good at taking the leadership role if I need to, or if I'm called to it. So anytime I've raced in an eight or a quad, um, or anytime I've raced in a double, even it's very comfortable. I'm extroverted about going. So I really enjoy connecting and interacting with people. Um, so rowing in a bigger boat or a team boat has always been a strong point. The biggest thing is, uh, here in Coeur d'Alene where I live, the, the most reasonable boat to row or the most reasonable goal to pursue is just the single simply because that's what we have access to and that's what's the easiest for us to pursue. You have any plans for um, collegiate rowing? Yeah, yeah, I do. We're still looking at different colleges. And I mean, this is going to be a little bit of a standard answer as everyone, everyone wants to know the answer to this. Um, but we haven't settled on a college yet. I'm in a gap year right now just to allow myself to, to work, to settle. Um, I plan on paying my own way through college, whether that's through scholarship or whether that's through just individual work. And I also want to make sure I'm mentally and physically prepared to go into college rowing with a mindset of pursuing Olympic career. Sure. Yeah. So your coach at your college program would need to understand that that's your goal because, you know, in a collegiate program, you might end up in an eight most of the time, and then you need to be doing your, your other training, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we've been talking with coaches about that and I'm, I'm very much willing to train and compete in the eight for school. Um, I really accord to it and it's something I know based on my personality. I'll really enjoy it, but I also don't want to give up my Olympic dreams for four years and then have to wreck them and come back to them. Um, I think U.S. rowing needs to find a, a good way to maintain the balance of Olympic hopefuls and Olympic pursuits while at the same time increasing the potential of our uh, collegiate rowing. Early on, when you started, when you started rowing on the water, 
you're in this environment of Coeur d'Alene where there's not a lot of rowing options or opportunities. And the story is that your dad started coaching you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he was not involved in rowing. So how does this work that you get this guy who said, I think my son has potential and I'm going to step up here? Yeah. So one of the things I can absolutely guarantee you that my dad will do in any situation is if you find something that he wants to get involved in, his engineering personality and brain will take over and he will not rest until he finds out how it works, the fundamentals to it, what happens, what makes something tick. And then he'll apply that practically in almost every way he can. So it's the idea of learning first principles. It's the idea of learning, okay, there's this many things that affect the boat. Your feet are in a foot stretcher, your butt is on a seat, your hands are on oars, and the boat is in the water creating draft. What is the most effective way to move the boat and still maintain all the forces that you need to? And so that looked like an incredible number of, of articles and studies that looked like studying the top rowers with force crews that looked like studying technique and mentality and philosophy. And this is something that we both learned together. And so as he was coaching me, the biggest thing was he was my coach, but he, he was reminding me of things that I already knew and had learned alongside him that I just needed to remember to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different approach to coaching because you have no standard mindset or you have no, uh, you have no tradition behind you that influences your mindset. We were, we, we've gone out to a bunch of different coaches everywhere from just uh, a youth rowing coach or just a, uh, a coach who's coaching a small youth program all the way up to Tim McLaren and Mike Tady rowing with them in Oakland. And so we have all this different information that we have at our availability to apply in situations to just find out what makes the boat go fast. And then combine that with power and combine that with the earth, which is much simpler. And you have a very clear and you have a very fluid manuscript and a very fluid blueprint that you can then test with and work with in order to develop different growing strokes. I think it's so interesting hearing you talk about this because just about everyone that Tara and I know who's a rower especially kind of an elite level rower, most likely has come up through a scholastic program, a collegiate program, and then been a successful elite level master's rower. Yeah, the rowing world is so interconnected and it's so supportive of each other that you can reach out to almost anyone and they'll respond and be like, hey, yeah, come take a look, come row with us, see what you do, see what you like, see what you don't like, and then apply it in any way you want. the biggest thing that we've tried to do is be like, okay, these are fast athletes. He coached them. Okay. Reach out to them. What makes athletes fast? And then if we can train with that group or try and find people who we can train with who will influence me in order to get the boat moving faster, in order to pick up different traits, learn different techniques. And so it's a much more organic process than a lot of different coaching styles, I think. Steady State Podcast is made possible with listener support. Become a patron today for early access to episodes, discount on SSN swag, and invitations to patron-only events. Find out more about support levels and benefits at studystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. This episode is made possible in part by Lake Washington Rowing Club, the oldest rowing club in Seattle with a rich history and a long legacy of teaching the art of rowing. Find out more 
at lakewashingtonrowing.com. Steady State Podcast is supported in part by Concept2, now offering its holiday challenge. Find out more at concept2.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Steady State Network and on Twitter at Steady State Row. Sign up for our e-newsletter and become a patron at SteadyStateNetwork.com. In two, we're back with Isaiah Harrison. That's one, two. I, I was wondering, um, I have a 14-year-old in my life who has been at least 6'2 since he was 12. He's very tall. I helped him discover rowing. I said, you know, uh-huh. this is a kid that that really needs some discipline. He really needs something that's outside. He needs something that he can could be competitive in. And he has loved it. He just asked me last week. He's like, hey, do you know anybody named Isaiah Harrison? And I said, uh, yeah, I do. And he's in a youth program, Green Lake Crew, which is a very successful uh, boys mm-hmm. uh, boys program, as you might probably know. Mm-hmm. And But I'm wondering, what advice would you have maybe for a, a 14-year-old or somebody in a youth program who is thinking, I want to do what he's doing. I want to race the single. Maybe my program isn't the right place for me to really focus on that. Like, this is a really unusual approach. And I would think there's yeah. a lot of young rowers who want to break out and maybe race the single. What advice would you give uh, to those rowers? Yeah. So I would say from a philosophical standpoint, what you want to do is you want to set your own goals. So you want to find something that's manageable, find something that you can do. And you want to say as an individual or as, as just a rower myself, I want to pursue that. So find, find an earth piece that isn't going to be mandated or isn't going to be required by your club. And then say, okay, in this 6K or in this 5K, whatever piece you want to do, I want to do this time and make it a difficult time. Make it something you don't think you can do. That's just outside of your range of possibility. And that's going to be your long-term, like five, six month goal. And then set short-term goals. Say this month, I want to hit this time. I want to do 4K at my target 6K pace. But then also set weekly goals, set goals that say, okay, this week I want to do, I don't know, 7K total at my pace. So whether that means one day you do four by one at pace, and then another day you do a 2K or a 3K at pace, but make sure to set goals for yourself. So be self-motivated and then set them in standard times. Mm-hmm. In times that where every week you can look back on the week and say, I achieved something. I did what I set out for myself. And whenever you start building a habit of setting goals and then fulfilling those goals, it's going to become second nature. Where after you set a goal, after you decide you want to pursue something, you aren't going to be satisfied until you can either say, yes, I achieved it, or this is something that's out of my scope or that's out of my range. And I need to find a different goal. And so what it does is it, it trains your mentality to look for success while at the same time training you to, to perceive and to apprehend and per- to, to pursue what you know to be realistic or mm-hmm. just beyond your current capabilities. Okay. Well, I think that really would be a freeing concept for a kid that's one of, one of 150 kids in a youth program and, and actually says, you know what, I'm going to set some goals for myself. 
And I, as a coach, would be very impressed with that kid and say, okay, well, let's see how we can help you meet those goals. I think it would kind of shake things up a a bit in those youth programs. Yeah. Yeah. But what Um, an interesting interesting aspect of team dynamic is once everyone starts developing individual goals and really hmm. pursuing those goals, they're far more willing to work together to pursue collective team goals because now they view themselves as an individual pursuing something. But every time the individual gets stronger, gets more confident or more capable, the team as a whole becomes more confident. And that's visible in a boathouse environment. Yeah, absolutely. I just finished reading Better Great Never, written by Lindsay Dare Shoup. And she talks about a lot in her book, the concept of building team. And not team over self, but self really as a huge component of Mm -hmm. team. And that throughout her years, developing to the point that she made the national team and then being a part of the national team, there were times she thought, why aren't I in the A boat? You know, and then she realized that what she was offering in other boats was helping develop teammates so that they could all make the A boat. And I thought that was really fantastic. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, whenever I've seen you, including just recently in Boston, and when I saw you at Northwest Ergomania, you come with an entourage. You always have everybody with you. And I love that. And I'm wondering, I know there's your brother, Elijah, who also competed at the head of the Charles this year, right? In the youth single. And your mom and dad, I'm assuming, travel with you. Um, does everybody have sort of a role to play? Like someone's making sure you have your water bottle and someone's making sure that they videotape you going by. It seems like it's very integrated, uh, effort when you guys all travel. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the time, if we're traveling, especially if we're flying, it'll be just me and my dad or me and my dad, my mom, maybe I'm, uh, or my younger brother, if he's competing, but especially if we're taking a family trip that doubles as a rowing trip, um, my dad is definitely the one who's primarily doing things, making sure everything's in check. He's the one running the ship, making sure everything runs smoothly and we set sail on time. Um, my mom is the biggest emotional support. She's always there, super happy, very excited. Um, my younger brother is her, at least in some essence, my training partner. He's the one, especially now, who understands the pressure and the mentality behind rowing. He's another athlete that I coach, but that I also work. So I find him to be a strong brother and a strong individual that I work with. Um, my older siblings are both there to make sure my ego stays in check. They're like, they're like the, uh, the, the older rowers who know what's going to happen. And so they make sure that, you know, you're coming up on something and my younger siblings, they're really just there as my support and my family. They're constantly loud, constantly cheering, always excited. No one person's handing me the water bottle. No one person is making sure I have a bucket whenever I'm ready to throw up. But everyone's prepared for that, and everyone's right beside me whenever those things happen. We are, in every essence, um, a true family, and I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, you're really lucky to have that. How many? How many total are there? Six. Six kids. I'm the I'm the upper half of the middle, so I have two older siblings. We were talking for a, a second about head of the Charles and seeing you there in Boston. And we know that you've had the opportunity to row up a class, a U23, when you were really U19. I have a two-part question. Whose idea is that? And what were you able to take away from rowing against older competitors, especially in Boston? Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, that was both mine and my dad's idea. Both of us, whenever we looked at the rankings, were like, no, I have graduated out of the U19 category. Um, I couldn't have raced U19 this year. And so it was a matter of club or championship singles. And I have found that every time I race up a category, every time I train or I race with people who I know for a fact are faster or better than me, I improve faster to try and reach their level. It's a matter of every time I see someone who's faster than me, I want to be able to keep up with them or beat them. It's just my personality. It's the kind of person I am. And so going into the race, I knew that there was a good chance I was going to get walloped. I knew that there was a good chance I was going to get beat sound. Um, and so that was, that was a unanimous, unanimous consensus, uh, deciding to race championships in, in Boston. My biggest takeaway from it was simply the fact that there are people who, well, it's best summarized with just like old age and treachery especially on the head of Charles on the Charles man. If you're going to take those corners or if you're going to be racing that race in a championship event, you got to be ready for a battlefield because mm -hmm. people are not going to hand it to you, especially racing the youth single last year. Everyone, most people knew who I was and most people could see someone coming down the course at them who was significantly bigger and faster than they were. And so they just got out of the way. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. The championship paint single people did not care. I almost cut a buoy at one point because a guy wouldn't move over. I had to go around the guy going into Elliot. Um, and so the biggest thing is just, there are people who are a lot faster than me mentally. They're more mature than me because they're prepared to be more aggressive while holding pace. And also physically, they've just trained longer, trained more. And so they know what it feels like to be in that race environment. And they've been there more times than I have. And so it's the idea of, okay, I've raced the youth circuit. Now I've raced U23, but I still see that there is more to be accomplished. And I want to be involved with that group. I want to be the best I can. And that means training and competing with people who I know are better. And now I've found those people. And you know, sometimes when you row with people who are more experienced than you, you do what, what we call rowing up. You play up, right? Yeah. If you get to try out a couple of things where you're like, all right, like, let's, let's go harder in this section than I expected to, or just cause it was more exciting. Yeah. I mean, the head of the Charles is such a variable race. You look back, once you finish the head of Charles, you look back and everything's just kind of like a blur. It's like, you just sped past it because there's so much you're doing so much you're focusing on, especially the single. And so I can absolutely guarantee you there were times in the race Whenever I was like, okay, let's try this. Let's see if it works. Um, let's be inventive. Just kind of stay on my toes. But I don't remember them now that the race is over. Simply because it's so much going on at that time that you don't have the mental space or you don't want to have the mental space in order to remember those things. You have to be ready for the next, next curve. You have to be ready for the next thing that's being tossed at you. And did you have a mantra going down the course? I don't think so. No, not at the Charles. Just curious. It, it's very chaotic. Rachel yeah. Cox in eight, and I was three seat in an eight. And it, it's just, there's so much going on and so much to, to not look at and so much to try and not see, you know, because, you know, as a rower, you're just, you know, yeah. flying by. And then the, the cheering from the bridges. Did, could you hear your family? Did you oh, know yeah. where they were? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm pretty sure there's videos from the Charles where you can hear my family. 
<laughs> Where do they like to stand on the Elliot? Yep, Elliot. Elliot is a hardest turn, in my opinion. Yeah. Yes. And if you come into it just right, it seems easy as pie. I will tell you that. As some of us experienced, I've been down the course six times now. It used to freak me out getting yeah. through Elliot. But if you can get into it just right and out, it's like, done, moving on. Yeah, that's what I found with weeks. Because weeks used to appear difficult. But as long as you really crank around that corner and then just aim for Lars Anderson, it's nice and easy. You just have to make sure you take that time. Elliot's like, oh, nice and slow. Oh, big, big turn. Oh, no, straight. Turn a little more. No, oh, okay, straight. Oh, there's a buoy on the other side. Aim for that. Okay, yeah. there's somebody aiming for the buoy also. What am I going to do now? Exactly. Yeah. Tara, you've got one more question, right? Yeah. And this is one of my favorite rowing questions. I've asked it of beginning rowers all the way to people who have been rowing since, you know, for 60 years. And I think you're going to, I'm excited about what you're going to say. So would you describe the perfect stroke? Yes. So the perfect stroke for me is based around the catch. Um, the timing on the catch is what's going to determine whether or not the stroke is set up well. So the perfect stroke, I'm completely relaxed, completely fluid all the way up the recovery. I'm prepped, I'm prepared for the catch. And there's a slight microsecond of a pause right whenever the catch happens. It's almost like um, if you ever want to focus on your breathing, you're going to realize that there's a slight pause or a stillness at the top and at the bottom of your breathing. Whenever you breathe in, there's a slight stillness. And whenever you breathe out all the way, there's a slight stillness. That stillness or that mentality is what you want to find right at the catch. It's smooth. It's comfortable. It's just in. It just kind of disappears. So you slide up, the blades disappear, and then you're immediately engaged. That's whenever the work happens. Once the blades are in the water, everything just turns on. Everything starts to happen. And so your core tightens. Your legs start driving out. And everything in your legs is like just trying to get to one point. Like your entire upper body is engaged, just connected, but everything is happening below the waist. And so you're driving out, you're pressing through. You can feel the blades accelerating. Like if you're really driving with your legs, you can just feel the water gripping the blades and tearing past it. So as you finish, you know you have one thing you need to do. So legs are coming to the end. You have to keep that speed going. So that's whenever you add the body into it. Adding the body into the stroke right at, towards the end of the leg drive, it's the most powerful point in the stroke because the blades are out at a roughly 45 degree angle and you're also engaging your hamstrings and your glutes. So this is where you can really put power and speed in. Mm. So you open up the body, you swing through the boats flying past you now and you would just have to keep up at this point. All that's left is finishing with the arms. And your only goal here is to continue building that speed to keep up with the boat, to keep applying pressure to the oars. So you swing through with the arms and right at the finish, you have this one little mo motion where your hands just kind of sink. It's just quick little pop where your hands sink straight down and the blade pops out of the water and snaps itself into a set. So the blade does almost all the work. You just have to focus on still, Relax, in, engage the blade, let it tear through the water, let it shoot the boat out past you. And at the very end, just make sure the blade come out clean. Just pop, very smooth, 
very minimal. And then coming back through the recovery, you're focused on matching speed with the water. You're focused on like engaging with your surroundings and reading what the boat is doing. So the perfect stroke for me is very alive and is very active. Um, it's very much an interaction between the horse, the boat, and the water. Uh, and so it's something that's very organic and it's something that's very, very intriguing. Awesome. Thank you. I knew it would be good. I knew you'd have a good one. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic talking with you. We know you have big goals and we are rooting for you. Can't wait to see what happens over the next couple of years and really hope to see you in Paris 2024. Yeah, I hope to as well. Well, good luck. And thank you so much for talking with us today. And uh, we'd love to talk again soon. All right. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Isaiah. Thanks, Isaiah. Thank you. Have a great day. To see photos of Isaiah and get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Catch new episodes of Steady State Podcast every other Sunday. Coming up next, we talk with Liz Winter, a Three Rivers Rowing Association member who describes herself as a human being working to make our sport more inclusive in many, many ways. Liz recently received a U.S. Rowing Level 3 High Performance Coaching Certification and is focused on coaching education, in particular trauma-informed and positive coaching that sees the whole person. This comes out of working as a therapist for 20 years and being a graduate social work educator. Liz brings her experiences as a lawyer, college rowing coach, and social worker to her team-based learning approach to help athletes and coaches in the support and development of critical thinking skills. Hey Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Right, we should tell them about Friday mornings when we get together for coffee chat. We talk about rowing, racing, technique, but we also deep dive into things like inclusion and leadership. Yeah, I really look forward to those Friday morning chats with you and yeah. our listeners. So we hope that you'll join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. West, 11 East on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. Steady State Podcast is brought to you by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience, and we run successful rowing-related enterprises. Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, designing unique rowing gear for individuals, clubs, and events. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Seize the Oar and RowSource. Steady State Podcast is a production of Steady State Network. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Tara and Rachel. Rachel also manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by the Free Harmonic Orchestra. Steady State Podcast celebrates real-life experience from launch to coxie at every level. Search the podcast archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast dash topics or listen on your favorite podcast app. Into way enough. That's one, two, way enough.